Hello, and welcome to Sundays at Coastal. This week we continue our series in the Book of Acts, and Pastor Paul teaches a sermon titled, Managing Conflict with Courage and Kindness. We have and will always face conflict. It's just a natural part of life. How we handle conflict has a huge impact on our lives and relationships. Every conflict involves a calibration of two core values, the value of the relationship and the value of the issue. Our debates and decisions must take place in a community under the authority of Scripture where we see the missional heart of God for all people. How can we use conflict as a bridge for the gospel of Christ? We must be sure to set our own agendas to the side, listen and obey the Scriptures, and be willing to listen to others. Setting our hearts on the things above, we will allow the Holy Spirit to direct us in conflict and restoration. So uh, I would like to introduce you to what we're all about here at Coastal Community. We believe three things that lead to three choices. It's really easy to remember. We believe in hope beyond our brokenness for this entire community. We believe that that hope floods into more of our lives as we trust our risen Savior. We want to be a Jesus church. And he joins us. He invites us to join him in his restoration work in our community. That leads to three choices. And can you say them with me this morning? A disciple is one who is intentionally walking with God. Choosing to be changed by Jesus, choosing to seek Jesus first, and choosing to join Jesus in his resurrection work. And he is doing this all over the place here. We just had 28 guests graduate from the Alpha, Fall Alpha, and the feedback was amazing. I, here's, here's one statement from one of our grads. I found answers to the questions I didn't realize I had. And in the process, I came to learn that Jesus loves me and wants to build a relationship with me. Is that cool? That's what he's doing. He's calling people to himself. So you may or may not know this, but there is a massive debate raging in the digital universe over the rings of power. Amazon series, the billion-dollar series of Tolkien's epic Lord of the Rings. On one side of this raging debate are the Tolkien purists who see any diversion from the author's original worldview and characters as pure heresy. And on the other side are those who celebrate the fact that although Amazon's version is clearly a dramatic interpretation, Millions of people are being exposed to Tolkien's world for the first time. This debate hits home for me in a serious way, so please pray for me. <laughs> My Tolkien cult family is seriously divided. Certain members are appreciating a lot about the current series, and others who will remain nameless <laughs> are literally boycotting the series altogether. And I find myself stuck in the middle of this conflict. Have you guys ever felt yourself stuck in the middle of a conflict? <laughs> I share this story as a parable for the conflict we're about to enter in the book of Acts between the purists and the evangelists. This is a conflict 
that could well have divided the entire Jesus movement and crippled the church from the very start. Are you ready? Let's pray. Come Holy Spirit. We welcome you again in this place. Do it again, Lord. Open up our imagination to your kingdom, to your power, to your presence, to your grace, and to your truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So over the past several weeks, we've followed Paul and his team as they were led by the Holy Spirit to bring the good news of the kingdom throughout South Galatia, or southern modern Turkey. Elsewhere, everywhere they went. They were met with both receptivity and resistance. Both ethnic Jews and Gentile pagans became disciples of Jesus and formed these new faith communities in each city in spite of intense persecution. Paul's team circled back in each city to encourage these new disciples and appoint spiritual leaders there. Then they returned to their home base in Antioch of Syria. Luke, the careful historian, An author of the book of Acts says in chapter 14, verse 27, upon arriving back in Antioch, they called the church together and reported everything God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith, the door just opened as I said that, (laughs) to the Gentiles. By the way, my son and I, walked on that Roman road out of Perga going north on that trip that Paul went on. And this is uh, located in near modern-day Antalya, Turkey, where we have a, I have a dear friend who pastors at one of the, 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 the fastest-growing Turkish churches in a, in a nation of 90, 80 million Muslims. And uh, his name is Pastor Ramazan, so the deeply uh, beautiful thing that God is doing there. In the place where this story in Acts happened, Jesus is doing it again. <laughs> so please read with me from Acts 15.1. While Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers... Unless you are circumcised as required by the book, you cannot be saved. Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. Vehemently. For Israel, circumcision was a core identity marker, a sign of belonging to the covenant of God. Every male infant in a Jewish family was to receive this mark of the covenant. As the good news spread beyond Jerusalem, new churches were born, consisting of both ethnic Jews and Gentile converts, and Antioch was a hub of this new multi-ethnic Jesus community. However, some Jewish followers of Jesus were concerned that these repentant pagans could be a threat to the purity of the faith. Are you guys following me? So they insisted that these Gentile believers first become Jewish in order to be full full followers of Jesus, insisting they receive the mark of circumcision. This led to an intense debate that nearly split the whole Jesus moment. What follows here is a watershed moment in the history 
of the church. Verse 2. Finally, the church, that would be the church in Antioch, decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some local believers, to talk to the apostles and elders about this question. I love the phrase, the church decided. This was not one person's agenda or plan. The body of believers in Antioch deliberated together on how do we proceed in the face of this conflict. And their thoughtful and proactive plan was to bring the issue before a higher authority to the leaders of the mother church in Jerusalem. Verse 3, the church sent delegates to Jerusalem. And as they're stopping along the way in Phoenicia and Samaria, they visited believers and churches there and told them to everyone's joy that the Gentiles were being converted. Verse 4, when they arrived in Jerusalem, Barnabas and Paul were welcomed by the whole church, including the apostles and elders. They reported everything God had done through them. Everything's beginning well. The delegation from Antioch is warmly welcomed by the whole church in Jerusalem. Barnabas and Paul begin to tell stories about what the Holy Spirit has been doing on their mission among outsiders in the pagan world. This must have been an amazing moment, exciting moment, hearing these God stories. Can you read with me? Verse 5, But then some of the believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and insisted. Can you say this with some drama? The Gentile converts must be circumcised and required to follow the law of Moses. So the apostles and elders, by the way, the Greek word for elders is presbyteros, from which we get Presbyterian, met together to resolve this issue. Friends, there were four primary political religious groups among the Jewish people in the first century. The Sadducees were the most unhappy group because they were sad, you see. They were the political liberals. The zealots were the Jewish version of the Proud Boys, self-appointed armed militias. The Essenes were the Jewish monastics, spiritual separatists. And the Pharisees were the conservative populists. All of these groups had several things in common. They deeply resented Roman occupation and were looking for the kingdom of God. But they had very different perspectives on how that kingdom would come. And they all had an agenda for Jesus that he would join their tribe and push their party line. Did he? I love this about Jesus. I love it so much about Jesus. Jesus refuses to fit into our little political boxes. Amen? Whether it be on the right or the left. I love this about Jesus. You see, here's the problem. When members of these Jewish groups turned to Jesus, they, like us, sometimes brought their political baggage into the church. I know it had never happened in America. (laughs) And that is what is happening right here in Acts 15. Some of these members of the Jerusalem church insisted that the repentant Gentiles must become Jewish like them before they could actually be accepted as real members of the church. The arguments go on and on, back and forth, getting more and more heated. Verse 7, at the meeting, after a long debate, the Greek word is it's, it's like controversy. 
Peter stands up, Simon Peter, and addresses them. Would you read with me? Brothers, y'all know that God chose me from among y'all some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so they could hear the good news and believe. Continue. God knows people's hearts, and he confirmed that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he gave us. You see, when Peter took the floor, he told his own story, which we covered a few weeks ago in Acts 10, of being literally dragged by the Holy Spirit. He doesn't really tell the truth that he was very unwilling in going to the home of a pagan Roman officer, part of the Roman occupation, named Cornelius, to share the good news of Jesus with this political enemy. Before Peter finished his message at Cornelius' house, the Holy Spirit did what? Do you remember? He fell on all the Gentile hearers. Peter's point? The Father gave these repentant outsiders the same Holy Spirit that he gave to us on the day of Pentecost. Peter, and that's the Holy Spirit coming right now. The Holy Spirit is just like a good Harley. More, Lord. Peter is asserting, guys, this is so radical, it's hard for me to communicate it, that the Holy Spirit is the new circumcision. Are you with me? The new mark of inclusion in the covenant family of God is not the work of human hands. It's the work of God himself. Woo! If you don't get anything else from this sermon, get that. Romans 8 put it this way. So y'all have not received, all the yous in Greek are y'alls. Y'alls have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves Instead, you received God's Spirit when He adopted you as His own children. Paul's talking to Gentiles here. Now we call Him what? Abba, Father. For His Spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. You see, according to Peter, if you have the Holy Spirit, you have everything you need to belong. Amen? Amen. Peter goes on. Can you read with me? God made no distinction between us and them, for he cleansed their hearts through faith. So why are you challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? We believe that we are all saved by the same way, by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. I love Eugene Peterson's translation. He says, quote, so why are you now trying to out-God God? Loading these new believers down with rules that crushed our ancestors and crushed us too. Don't we believe that we are saved because our master Jesus amazingly and out of sheer generosity moved to save us just as he did those far beyond our nation? So what are we arguing about? <laughs> There was dead silence. By the way, the Greek says there was dead silence. I love that. This is where I consistently get into trouble in my relationships, over and over again, is when I try to play God in the lives of other people. Can anybody relate? I know parents never struggle with this. 
Back to Jerusalem. The more stories are told of, there's more stories told of what God has done to take the initiative to reach these outsiders. Verse 12, everyone listened quietly as Barnabas and Paul told about the miraculous signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. When they had finished, James stands. You see, the decision of the council is still not resolved. This James, friends, is the brother of our Lord Jesus, the writer of the letter of James in the New Testament, the highly respected pillar of the church in Jerusalem. Tradition asserts that he had a nickname, Camel Knees, because he spent so much time on his knees in the temple praying for the church. Later in A.D. 61, James was brutally executed by stoning by Jewish, Jewish proud boys. This James, the leader of the mother church, waits till all the other voices have a chance to express themselves. Then there's silence, and then he stands to speak. He stands and delivers. Read it with me. Brothers... Listen to me. Peter has told you about the time God first visited the Gentile to take for a pe people for himself. I just love that phrase. It's, that's covenant language. That's covenant language. I said that to Kathy 43 years ago. I take you to be my wife. God is reaching out to people outside and taking them into his covenant love. The point is the mission of God in the world is not a human project, friends. God is taking the initiative in calling those who are far, far away, amen, and calling them near into relationship with his, himself and with his covenant people. Verse 15, and this conversion of Gentiles is exactly what the prophets predicted. Or in the ESV, James says, with this, the words of the prophets agree. The, the Greek word is symphonize, basically. The work of the Holy Spirit and the witness of Scripture always symphonize. They never contradict. And then James quotes from the prophet Amos, very much like the book of James, justice for the outsider and the vulnerable. That's the message of Amos. As it is written, afterward, I will return and restore the fallen house of David. Can you read with me? I will rebuild its ruins and restore it so that the rest of humanity might seek the Lord, including the Gentiles, all those I have called to be mine. The Lord has spoken. He who made these things known so long ago. Notice what the elder James does before he gives his verdict. After listening to all other voices, he turns to Scripture. Our debates and decisions must take place in community under the authority of Scripture, friends. It's only as we are saturated in the biblical story that we can truly discern God's direction for our lives and our mission. In quoting the prophet Amos, James shows that the multi-ethnicity of the people of God is not a new invention. It's been on God's heart from Genesis to Revelation. God is on a mission to bless and heal the nations. And y'all, right here, this band of misfits, look around. 
we get to join him in this restoration project. But there's a delicate issue first that needs to be dealt with. You see, there are small bands of Jewish people meeting in synagogues all across the Roman Empire. Whenever Paul goes to a city, he and his team go where first? They go to the synagogue and begin sharing there. And then they go out to the non-Jewish community. So from the inception, these new churches are mixed, multicultural communities. And the question here is, how can the church protect their multi-ethnic unity? How can the church prevent division in each city? So you have the first Jewish church of Christians and the first Gentile church of Christians. We almost had that split in the first century. And of course... If you study church history, especially from the Reformation on, we have split in thousands and thousands and thousands of ways. It's tragedy. How can table fellowship be secured with these different culture groups? So James says, in a very, with a lot of realism, so here's my decision. We're not going to unnecessarily burden non-Jewish people who turn to the master. We'll write them a letter and tell them, be careful to not get involved in activities connected with idols, to guard the morality of sex and marriage, and not to serve food offensive to Jewish Christians. Blood, for example. What is James doing here? He's, he's trying to provide a double principle of no needful circumcised circumcision for the Gentiles, but no needless offense of the Jewish believers. You guys with me? He's trying to give rules for engagement that allow them to still be in communion together. Verse 22, then the apostles and elders, together with the whole church in Jerusalem, chose delegates, and they sent them from Antioch with Paul and Barnabas to report the decision. Why send people with the letter? Have you ever sent an email or a text in the context of a conflict how did, was it ever misinterpreted? <laughs> did it ever backfire? Have you ever pushed that send button and go, why did I do that? It's so wise that the church sent real delegates to go with the letter to communicate in a personal face-to-face -face way the intent of the letter. And it's an amazing letter. It, it affirms, it basically dismisses the agitators and said, we did not send them, but we're sending the beloved Paul and Barnabas. And, and it was an affirming uh, with a great tone of respect. It used the word brothers, like it was speaking to the church, not as the church up here in Jerusalem, a church down here in Antioch, they spoke family language. We're siblings. It's an amazing letter. We don't have time. Uh, but let's go to verse 30. The messengers, can you read it with me? Went at once to Antioch, where they called a general meeting of the believers and delivered the letter. And there was great joy throughout the church that day as they read this encouraging message. Then Judas and Silas, the delegates from Jerusalem, both being prophets, spoke at length to the believers, encouraging and strengthening their faith. They stayed there 
a while, and then the believers sent them back to the church in Jerusalem with a blessing of peace. Do you see the full circle reconciliation that happened here? Theologian Tom Wright says, God has fulfilled his covenant with Israel by sending Jesus as Messiah. The covenant family is now thrown open to all without distinction. So, I've come up with 12 observations. I call it Dr. Luke's diagnosis of healthy conflict. Can I share them with you? <laughs> Dr. Luke, you know, Luke is the author of Acts. He was a doctor. So it's Dr. Luke's diagnosis of healthy. By the way, I've printed this out on the uh, sermon guide. So you have them. It's available at the Welcome Center. So you don't have to take notes. Number one. Success can sometimes create conflict. This whole issue was a result of the Holy Spirit's expansion of the gospel into a lost world. Success can sometimes create conflict. Number two, conflict is not inherently bad. Can you say that with me? Conflict is not inherently bad. This debate actually helped build a discernment process and a foundation for the future of the church that wouldn't have happened without it. Number three, decisions are best made in community. We see no political spin and manipulation or power plays going on here. Number four, individual churches need to be connected to larger systems of healthy accountability. The church in Antioch was able to appeal to the church in Jerusalem. Number five, with our opponents, it's essential to practice hospitality, kindness, and to assume the best about them. We see this gentle tone in the whole of the rigorous, rigorous debate. Number six, each side of the conflict has a backstory that needs to be voiced and understood. This can be messy. Have you ever tried to resolve a conflict without understanding the backstory? It's frustrating. Number seven, personal testimonies of God's work play a central role in the discernment process. Number eight, wise leaders model humble submission to the authority of Scripture. Scripture always symphonizes with the witness of the Spirit. Number nine, consensus, although not always possible, is really valuable for ensuring resolution. They were able to go to the Antioch church with full consensus from the Jerusalem church. Number 10, decisions are best communicated personally, not in text or email face-to-face. -face. 11, a, a feedback loop allows decision-makers to hear how decisions are being received. You guys with me there? And finally, number 12, the mission of God advances on bridges of healthy conflict resolution. This unleashed a new missional impact in the, in the Roman Empire, this resolution. Acts 15 is a powerful narrative of how to steward, I like the word steward better than manage, steward conflict with both courage and kindness. So can we apply this to our everyday lives? Do I have permission to meddle? Mm, not sure, Pastor Paul, not sure. So according to Prepare Enrich, one of the nation's most respected research-based marriage enrichment organizations, here are some markers of happy and unhappy couples. 
When we discuss problems, my partner understands my opinions and ideas. You see the percentages there? I can share feelings and ideas with my partner during dis disagreements. Ooh, another 78% there. We are able to resolve our differences. We have similar ideas about how to settle disagreements. My partner takes our disagreements seriously. This doesn't just apply to married couples. This applies to churches, to workplaces, even to international relations. Amen? So here's the issue. One of the greatest challenges in relationships, especially among Christians, is the problem of denial. There's a children's book called There's No Such Thing as a Dragon. Notice the child looking out the top window in complete denial. Do you see? Yes. It's hard to see. Got a big smile on his face. Churches can have dragons too. Luke, the author of Acts, is not embarrassed by the conflict in Antioch. He feels no need to airbrush out the messy parts of the story. I believe he, he includes this story to help future generations of the church name and tame our dragons. Amen? Each of us has a default response to conflict shaped by what we experience in our families of origin. How many of you guys grew up in a family where conflict was always dealt courageously and kindly and in a healthy way? Wow. I am not surprised. These experiences lead to unconscious, deeply held beliefs about conflict. Our typical defaults in conflict are denial, fight, or flight. You may have grown up in a culture of denial where everybody just pretends that nothing's wrong. Or maybe you grew up in a culture of fighting with the need to win. That would be my Portuguese-Irish family which is, the creed was, if you love me, you will agree with me. How do you think that worked? <laughs> Number three, you may have go, gr grown up in a culture of avoidance. That's kind of like denial. So it's important to acknowledge your default in conflict and how it affects your relationships. And this allows you the freedom to choose alternative approaches. You see, what if we saw conflict as an opportunity, as a stewardship moment to grow in humility and respect and in understanding with those we disagree? Friends, I'm a survivor of a church war. I still have some battle scars. I was serving as an associate pastor in a church that had a huge split. It seemed like people on all sides were drawing conclusions without having the facts and then sharing those rumors within all their friends and family groups, where I would find myself at Rite Aid and a non-Christian checker was talking about this church that was having a big conflict, and I didn't want to tell them, but it was my church and I was one of the pastors. Our failure to pursue healthy conflict resolution hindered our worship, our mission, so much. In the end, more than 100 people left the church. Several new believers became disillusioned with the faith. It was tragic. In response, our elders brought in a church doctor. <laughs> She's a Mennonite. The Mennonites are known for courageous conflict resolution named Roseanne. And she gave us hope. 
Roseanne taught us that we have choices. And she gave us this diagram, which, which is worth its weight in gold. It's also uh, at the Welcome Center, if you find this helpful. She, she basically sees conflict, I'm a visual person, along two axes. There's the vertical axis, which is the, every conflict has a different calibration of the value of the relationship, and then the, the horizontal is the value of the issue. Every conflict involves discerning and calibrating these two values. Are you guys with me so far? Yes. So let's just say uh, you have super high value on the issue of justice and truth. In a given, like evil has happened, and, and you have to confront evil, and you're willing to sacrifice the relationship for this value, that would be called what? A, the fight choice. B is the choice that says, I'm going to put the highest value on the relationship, and I'm willing to sacrifice truth and justice for the relationship. That would be accommodate. C is whatever, I don't care about the relationship and I don't care about the issue. That would be D, values expedience. If we could just accept partial solutions, as long as both sides are minimally satisfied, that's called, which implies that both sides are minimally unsatisfied. And then there's care fronting which works with the opponent to find ways that both parties can move towards common goals, know the backstory behind what they're longing for. It re usually requires going beyond the presenting issue to asking, help me understand why this is important to you. It's a beautiful question. And I love this phrase. I've taken it into my marriage. Is This is an important issue to me and I want to speak my mind on it. My relationship with you is also important, and I don't want to hurt our relationship, but I need you to hear me out. Is that a beautiful phrase? That's what carefronting does. Now, when we read the Gospels, guess what? We see Jesus using all of these responses to conflict. There's no, like, one-size-fits-all Approach, But the Holy Spirit, especially in conflicts like Acts 15, will often seek to lead us out to what? To care fronting, valuing both the issue and the people. And that's what we see this Acts 15. They're trying to hold on to the value of the issue, the theology that, that was so critical, and the relationship. You see how they're trying? It's messy to try to do that work. It takes patience. Uh, and so I want to invite you right now to think about a conflict you're facing and invite King Jesus into the middle of it. Are you willing to do that? Just lay it. Lord, we lay these conflicts before you right now. We invite you into the confusion and the misunderstanding. We invite you into the, the desperate need to calibrate the value of the relationship, the value of the issue. We don't confess we have it all figured out, and we haven't always responded wisely. We haven't stewarded it, this opportunity well. We confess that to you. Come, Holy Spirit, right into these messy places in our world. 
in our nation, in your church. Come, Holy Spirit. Listen to this good news, friends. Verse 33, they, the delegates from Jerusalem, stayed for a while. Then the believers in Antioch sent them back to the church in Jerusalem with a blessing of what? Guess what the Hebrew word is for that word? Shalom. It's so much more than an emotion. Peace is so much more than the absence of conflict. Peace is symphony. Peace is harmony. Peace is wholeness. Peace is reconciliation. But peace doesn't mean avoiding real truth. It's not pretending. That's what shalom is, friends. Can we pray the prayer of St. Francis as we go into a... uh, You know, I'm 64 years old, and I've never seen a more divided world in my few years than we live in today. Can we pray the prayer of St. Francis as we go into that world? And I'm going to ask... Uh, the worship team to come up and lead us and do it again. Because if he did it in Acts 15, he can do it again in America today and in our world today. He can move those mountains. So I will read the prayer, phrase by phrase, if you would pray it after me. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there's hatred, let me bring love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. Oh, divine master. Grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled As to console, to be understood, as to understand, to be loved, as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Please stand as we worship. Do it again, Lord. We'd be honored to pray with you about a mountain in your life up here in the front. Um, If you are looking for a safe place to make friends and wrestle with this message, uh, that's what we do at Table Talk across the street behind the... Lowell Center, that house with the white picket fence, has a patio, and we unpack the sermon. Of course, correct all the bad theology, you know, um, which we do every week. But no, receive the blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon y'all and give you what? Shalom. Go in his peace. Amen. Pastor Paul Dugan is the pastor of Mission and Discipleship at Coastal Community Church. It's located in Grover Beach, California and serves 
communities across the Central Coast. Join us online each week on Sunday morning at 9 a.m. for our weekly live stream. We also have two in-person services at 9 a.m. and 10.40 a.m. in our sanctuary. Coastal Community Church is located at 1830 Farrell Road, Grover Beach, California. For more information, visit our website, www.mycoastal.org. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you have a great week.